I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Jennifer Aist. She's the director of the Maternity Outpatient Clinics at Providence Alaska Medical Center. She also has 20 years of experience as an international board-certified lactation consultant. And today, we're answering your questions about breastfeeding. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from our listeners on social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag TalkWithADoc, that's hashtag TalkWithADoc, for a chance to hear your questions on one of our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. All right, well, let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the easy one. What's your role here? Mm, my role here, um, I am the uh, director for maternity outpatient clinics and services and family support services. So that covers our uh, lactation program, family support counseling or maternal mental health, uh, parenting with Providence, uh, child life, parent navigators. Um, so you're bored. Super bored. <laughs> sounds like yeah. a lot. <laughs> All things children. <laughs> All things children. Well, today's topic is about breastfeeding. And I think mm-hmm. um, we'll start with uh, why is breastfeeding so important? Okay, that's that's kind of the, the golden question. Uh, breastfeeding is really critical in terms of uh, population health. It's probably the, um, the most effective, most powerful opportunity to change health outcomes on a, on a global level in any community. And how common is breastfeeding? Are we seeing increases, decreases? Does it vary by community? Does it vary by culture? Um, all of the above, for sure. Um, it's funny to, to think of it as how common is, is breastfeeding. It's almost like, how common is it to get the flu? But um, if you want to know the prevalence of breastfeeding and how many women breastfeed, absolutely it changes um, with, with culture and in different communities. Here in Alaska, um, at our hospital, at the Children's Hospital of Providence, uh, pro- approximately 95% of women um, upon admission to labor and delivery say, I want to exclusively breastfeed my baby. Wow about 90-95%. And that's pretty consistent actually across the state of Alaska. Um, In areas of of the South, you know, Georgia, Louisiana, um, breastfeeding rates are are much lower. But certainly in terms of World Health Organization standards, um, it it should be closer to 100% um, initiating breastfeeding. So so you can look at initiation of breastfeeding and then you look at the numbers and how they go um, down with Mm -hmm. age. So at discharge, um, uh, the number, so 95% on admission say I want to exclusively breastfeed my baby. And by discharge, that number's dropped fairly significantly. By two weeks, it's dropped again. And by six months, it's down closer to to 40% actually are still exclusively breastfeeding their their babies. And that just means no bottle feeding. Um, it's a little bit more than that. Um, you could be bottle feeding breast milk and that would still be considered, um, exclusively breast, um, milk fed, uh, babies. So what it means is an introduction of anything other than, uh, breast milk into a baby's diet. So that could be food. It could be various gruels and paps and different things that different, um, teas, other things that, um, people feed young infants. So is that formula? It's formula as well. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. What are the main reasons that it does change after the first two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a couple months? 
Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question and something that um, in the field of human lactation that we grapple with quite a bit. And, and why does that happen? Um, and there's a lot of reasons um, for that. There was a big shift about 100 years ago, around the same time that birth transitioned from having uh, women and midwives and a midwifery model delivering babies to baby and at home and babies then being born in a hospital and by male obstetricians. And so, and at that same time, just the medicalization of maternity care really kind of took off. And as part of that, and especially uh, post uh, World War II, then there was this sense that uh, if you can measure it, it's better. If we can concoct it in a lab, it's better. Mm. And that became the, the greatest shift um, away from feeding infants human milk to feeding infants um, various formulas. And even the name formula kind of implies that it was scientifically derived and, yeah. and must be better. Um, and interestingly, um, early formulas um, you could make yourself in your own kitchen. And it was corn syrup evaporated milk and water. So there's an entire generation of people out there and that's what they were fed. And I see you raising your eyebrows like, are you kidding me? It does me? not sound like a good thing for raising a baby with. Well, it's not super healthy, right. no, but um, but that was what was done. And those mothers did the best with the information that they were given at the time. That's what they were told and that's what they did. And then there's been a slow but somewhat deliberate shift um, back to breastfeeding. So obviously, historically, human infants were fed human milk. Mm-hmm. And so there's really just this kind of... Um, glip in history that babies were fed other things well what are the what are the downsides of not feeding breast milk yeah um and that's a that's a good way of wording that that question so we often talk about the benefits of breastfeeding um we don't often talk about the risks of not breastfeeding so for example we can lower the incidence of juvenile onset diabetes by 40 percent by having babies exclusively breastfed, meaning again, only human milk to that baby uh, for the first four months of life. That's a big number. It is a big number. And in a lot of communities, that, that goes back to my statement earlier about global health and population health, and you wanna lower the incidence of chronic disease, really you can't get frankly a better looking and um, more encompassing way to to address those issues now I could just as easily flip those statistics around and say you are at a 40 percent increased risk of develop of your child developing diabetes by feeding your baby anything else other than human milk and so the numbers are the same. It's just kind of a twist right, right. on on how you word them. But the impact, and, and it's kind of, you have to think of it kind of like biochemistry. So um, what you put into your body, your body does things with, and mm-hmm. there are outcomes, um, pro and con, things that are beneficial for your health and things that are harmful for your health. So uh, feeding babies human milk, the mothers are at... Um, decreased risk of developing premenopausal breast cancer, actually up to 50% um, risk reduction. And um, find me another cancer reduction method that has those stats. Um, Ovarian cancer as well for the mother, uh, urinary tract infections for the mother. 
there's some evidence that it can lower incidence in symptoms of postpartum depression. Um, for babies, we can reduce uh, diarrhea, hospitalizations, diabetes. Uh, we ha can show increased um, IQ scores. We can show, um, gosh, I mean, y you name it, incidence of childhood yeah. cancer, all sorts of things. So uh, definitely, um, there's Lots something, something is happening in the early days of life in the early months of life, by having certain foods that are um, contributors to lifelong um, impact on on a child's health. Sure, sure. A lot of benefits. Are there a lot of the emotional benefits to just the connection between mom and baby? Yes, um, for sure. I think um, our, our therapists and our mental health uh, department would certainly talk about the stressors of, of breastfeeding and when that's difficult and how that is challenging to, to their overall um, you know, mental status. But also, there was a study done many, many years ago, probably 30, 40 years ago now, and it was in India, and they were having a, um, a huge problem with child abandonment, infant in abandonment, leaving babies by oh you know, dumpsters and horrible things like that. And the government, it was so bad, the government had to intervene. And their intervention was to increase breastfeeding rates. And so we know when we can get moms and babies together following a non-traumatic birth and to be able to have that skin-to-skin -skin, mm -hmm. um, time in early breastfeeding and good support around breastfeeding, that, um, that mothers, it, it eases that transition mm -hmm. into bonding and into parenting. And so in this study, they found it to be hugely uh, beneficial. So they ended up with not only healthier babies, healthier moms, but the incidence of child abandonment um, with newborns um, almost disappeared. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So yes, there is something there. Well, I know I've seen a lot of studies and a lot of commentary about um, babies being more immune or having better immunity if they're breastfed. Mm -hmm. Is that because the moms have been vaccinated and it transfers to the baby in the first mm -hmm. few months? Or how does that work? Yeah, another great question. So there's um, a phenomena we call site-specific uh, immunity. So anytime the mother touches um we'll just call it a gross surface and there's <laughs> crud and bugs and germs and yucky stuff on it. The mother's mature, um, presumably healthy immune system is going to develop protection against whatever crud that she came in contact with. Okay. And then that's all going to be immediately passed on uh, to the baby. So yes, so it is, it is literally site specific immunity. So in other words, as the as if you're assuming that the baby is in similar environments of the mother, then everywhere the mother goes, they are developing immunity, passing that on to the baby to specifically um, the environment that that child is in. That's great. Well, how does Providence promote breastfeeding? Um, Providence works to promote and support breastfeeding in, in a lot of different ways. One, we try to normalize it. Um, we have a very comprehensive program um, beginning prenatally with prenatal breastfeeding education in classes. Um, some of those are available online and in Spanish as well as English. Um, we also have live classes. Then when they come to the hospital, all of our staff are trained in how to support breastfeeding women. We work to um, change policies, change procedures to um, facilitate 
early interactions, early bonding, early skin to skin care. And then after they leave the hospital, we don't just leave them at the curb, then we pick them up again. And we have um, probably the largest outpatient lactation clinic, um, certainly in the state of Alaska, and one of the largest uh, in the country um, that continues to provide uh, one on one private uh, appointments. for as long as they want. We have folks come in with um, older children who are still breastfeeding and um, subsequent pregnancies, et cetera. Well, that's a really good point because one of the questions we got was how long should I breastfeed? Ah. You just said older children. Yeah. You should breastfeed as long as it's working for you. Really? Ah. Okay. Yeah. The World Health Organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Association for Family Practice, basically every large body of healthcare uh, recommends exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life, followed by a gradual introduction of solid foods, continued breastfeeding through the first year of life. Um, worldwide, the average age of weaning is two okay. years old. Okay. Wow. Well, this question's good. Since it's natural doesn't mean it's simple. <laughs> God, I wish <laughs> like I wouldn't need to be here. Yeah, <laughs> if it was that automatic, I wouldn't have a job. So um, it, obviously there's challenges. I think our, our culture makes it way more difficult than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. I think there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done around hospital procedures, policy, um, nursing care that could um, ease the way of moms. Um, if you look at other mammals, um, they certainly have an easier time doing this than, right. than we do. Right. And so when you ask the question why, I think we muck around with things a bit too much and make it quite a bit harder. We always make things more complicated we than they do. need to be, right? Yes. <laughs> so silly. Well, how long is a typical nursing session? Each time that you're feeding the baby? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, for a newborn, anywhere between 15, 30 minutes. And how many times a day do you typically nurse? Well, um, so what I try to encourage parents to kind of reframe how they look at that. So uh, a newborn's task in life, and they have many, but one is they're going to double their birth weight by around five or six months of age. Mm -hmm. They're going to triple it by a year. So if I told you, you have five months to double your current weight, you know, how often would you eat? Um, so yeah, babies do, they, they eat a lot. So they eat six to 10 times a day it is considered normal. A baby is coming from an environment in the uterus where they are fed constantly 24 seven, right? So from the baby's perspective, just going to every, you know, one to three hours is already a significant reduction. So, um, yeah, but they do, they need to eat frequently. You can also look at it like how often do you put something in your mouth? You know, I was just thinking I could double Prop- my weight in like a weekend. So <laughs> we need to talk. We do. <laughs> we do right? Well, that seems like a lot of strain on the mom. What's what's a, a mom's nutrition impact from breastfeeding? Yeah. So um, to be pregnant, it, you know, mothers burn an extra about 300 calories a day oh, to wow. grow a baby. And it takes about another 500 calories a day to make milk for that baby. Okay. Wow. Um, and with twins, then that's 900 to 1,000 um, extra calories a day oh, to, to make milk. So it actually is more energy using to make milk than it is to be pregnant. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And I assume then it's just a recommended healthy diet, right? Good protein, yeah. good. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have so many more questions for you, but we're going to have to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about breastfeeding.
Every day can be a better day despite the challenge. All you gotta do is leave it better than you found it. It's gonna get difficult to stand, but hold your balance. I just say whatever, cause there is no way you're round it. Everyone falls down sometimes, but you just gotta know it'll all be fine. It's okay. It's okay, it's okay Hey, feeling good, like I should When in Doku, walk around the neighborhood Feeling blessed, never stressed Got that sunshine on my Sunday best Hey, some days you wake up and nothing works You feel surrounded Gotta give your feet some gravity to get you grounded Keep good things inside your ears just like the waves and sound it And just say whatever cause there is no way you're grounded Everyone falls down sometimes But you just gotta know it'll all be fine It's okay Sunshine on my Sunday best Hey, feeling good Like I should When in Doku walk around the neighborhood Feeling blessed Never stressed Got that sunshine on my Sunday best Well, welcome back to Talk with the Doc where we're joined by our guest who's a certified lactation consultant, Jennifer Ace from Providence Alaska Medical Center and we're talking about breastfeeding. So when we talk about breastfeeding, I hear the word latching a lot. What does that mean? Um, latching is basically, it is the attachment of the baby to the breast in, in its simplest terms. And um, But there's a lot of um, talk about it and focus on it in the early days of life as babies figure out how to effectively latch in a way that's comfortable for the mom and facilitates a good transfer of milk to the baby so that the baby can gain weight, thrive, et cetera. Well, a lot of moms want to know how to know if the baby's getting enough milk. Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of moms wish there was a little gauge on the side of the breast (laughs) that said full, empty, but that's not exactly how it works. You have to look at at different signs. So in the first two weeks of life, it's fairly predictable. We look for one wet diaper per day old till the baby's around six days old. Mm -hmm. After that, we expect to see around six to eight wet diapers a day um, and nice heavy wet diapers. Um, Any more diapers they have like a strip on it and it turns blue when the baby's diaper is wet. So I know it gets easier and easier, but honestly you shouldn't need that. If it's a heavy squishy diaper, great. Your your baby is, is uh, maybe check it every now and then too, right? Check it. Yeah. Give that a little squish. Uh, and then we look for uh, poopy diapers as well. And so we expect to see between two and 10 poopy diapers. We can actually tell a lot in the very early days, the first five days of life, how much milk that baby's getting, even by the color of the stool as it transitions from something we call meconium for the first poop on um, to mature breastfed baby poop, which is kind of this mustardy (laughs) yellow sort of thing. Well, this is a fun conversation. I know. We get all into (laughs) colors and and texture and all sorts of stuff with poop. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I think a lot of moms ask the question too, how do I know if my baby's ready to eat? Is there a hungry cry? There is a hungry cry, um, but way before the baby's crying, there's a lot of other signs. And one, uh, some of the work that we do both prenatally and postpartum is to educate parents on how to read their baby and how to look for those other cues. Mm -hmm. So a brand newborn baby, if the baby's awake, that's a feeding cue. If the baby's starting to open his or her mouth and kind of turn their head, look mm -hmm. around, um, that's a feeding cue. Bringing the fist to the mouth, that's a feeding cue. And then baby Babies, babies are really clever little people, and if plan A, B, C, and D didn't work, then they start screaming. So crying <laughs> is actually a late sign um, that I'm that I'm hungry. Wow. Well, when I was doing research for this topic, I read about breast milk banks. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So human milk banking started um, a really long time ago. There's records throughout history of mankind, actually, of babies being fed by, by other mothers. Mm -hmm. um, wet nurses was um, a thing. It was mm -hmm. actually a sought-after profession for a lot of women. Um, it was actually a good gig, right? So if you were living in tenement housing in New York City in the 1920s or 18-whatevers, and not in great circumstances, and then you could go live in a wealthy woman's house and get right. fed and sit in a rocking chair and feed babies all day long. Um, it's actually a pretty good yeah. um, operation. And there's lots of fascinating history around that. In the 1700s, they wouldn't allow redheaded women to be wet nurses because the thought was that they would have fiery milk and that that would influence no the way. baby's personality. I can't. So, um, yeah. So we've um, since learned that redheaded women have outstanding milk, as do <laughs> women with brown hair and blonde hair and black hair and everything in between. So, um, what was your original question? Well, just really what it is. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think milk this, banking. this okay. path is really interesting, though, because it doesn't really matter whose milk you're getting, right? Like cross-culturally or, or what color your hair is. Yeah, it's it's a little more complicated than that. So think of it back to, to biochemistry. So there are um, there's absolutely species-specific fats. There are species-specific mm -hmm. species um uh, proteins and whatnot. And every mammal on the planet has a little bit of a different mix, mm -hmm. if you will, in different ratios. If you're a cash species, like a cat, um, like a mountain lion or something, their milk is super high in fat so that they can cash their babies and have them go hang out in a cave or wherever they hang out during the day and the mom goes <laughs> out and hunts. I think she might actually be going out and just hanging out. I don't just know. Just getting away from the cubs Yeah, at just this getting point, away right? for a few hours <laughs> and then like the last five minutes she's actually hunting. But so that's very different than a carry species where um, uh, apes, chimpanzees, mm. humans, we carry our species, our babies on our hips, whatever. Our babies, uh, our milk is higher in carbs. And so our babies therefore need to eat more frequently. So there's that. So human milk banking in the U.S. as a formal thing started in the 1970s. And then the brakes kind of got put on at the onset of HIV okay. um, and when that was sure. discovered. And then it is now... Um, experiencing a real resurgence and we're seeing a lot more of human milk banking. So for example, in our NICU, our newborn intensive care unit, those babies are obviously very fragile babies and we have babies, tiny little people who are, you know, a pound, even less than a pound wow. at birth. And so everything that goes into that baby 
be it a, a, a medicine, food, whatever, great deal of thought is put into that and how that's going to impact the baby. And so that's where human milk banking really initially took off was at that patient population. And so we can take human milk and, um, can actually even modify it and increase the calories. We can spin it off and make it a higher calorie dense food. So in our um, newborn intensive care unit, our kind of hierarchy of milk, if you will, is our first choice is mom's own milk, Mm -hmm. because that's going to have those site specific um, immune factors that we talked about earlier, that banked milk would not have, it's going to have everything that is designed specifically for that baby. And interestingly, at that gestational age, so a woman who delivers a baby at 30 weeks, her milk is different than a woman who delivers at 32 weeks or 40 weeks, et cetera. And so mom's own milk is always our first choice. Uh, Second choice is bank donor milk and and it is pasteurized. It is screened for uh, a variety of diseases. And there's actually never been a case of disease transmission via banked human milk since we have been doing formal banked um, that is really human impressive. Milk. And then our third choice is to use um, infant formulas mm-hmm. as our third choice. Um, but that is also a viable, viable choice as well. So as the um, acceptance of human milk banking is, um, is growing, um, the uses for hum- banked human milk are increasing. So women who are adopting babies, if there's availability, may have that opportunity to use banked donor milk. We use it now in our uh, mother-baby unit for babies who are hypoglycemic. Mom's milk is delayed for coming in, whatever reason. We can supplement with, with that. With the goal being to avoid the exposure of a newborn gut to a bovine protein or a cow mm-hmm. protein for as long as is possible. And that gut is so fragile that first, especially six weeks of life, that's really our most critical time to avoid exposure to other things. It only takes one ounce of um, an infant formula to permanently change the microbiome of that infant's gut. Really? And so, and that's not to say that supplementing with formula is bad. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's just, it comes with, um, with with some baggage. Sure. And so when we use it, we want to make sure that we're using it appropriately and because we really need to. So you mentioned cow's milk, basically. My generation, I remember a lot of babies being on goat milk. Is mm. that something that you're still seeing, or has formula really taken yes, that, over? No, goat goat's milk is a thing for sure. And in Alaska, we have um, it. There's a lot of raw milk um, feeding of babies. If you lived in other parts of the world, you can actually get canned camel milk and oh, and wow. other mammals' milk. Yeah. You got to wonder how many mammals are going to just be willing to stand there and be milked, but it's always been a mystery to me. I don't feel like they have but, a lot of uh, choice in the matter, just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah, so um, our standard line is goat milk is so super awesome if you're a baby goat, and <laughs> cow milk is so super awesome if you're a baby cow See where this or is baby going. seal or whatever. <laughs> right, so right. again, I mean, it kind of just goes back to our first choice is mom's own milk, second choice bank donor milk, third choice is infant formula. Well, Jennifer, we like to play a game on Talk With A Doc called Myth Versus Fact, where I give you a statement and you tell me if it's a myth or it's a fact. And I know that you're always going to have some clarification to it. And that's okay. There is a prize, but I can't tell you what it is yet. (laughs) Everybody asks that question. Yeah. All right. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. All right. Bring it. (laughs) Myth versus fact. Is it normal for nursing to hurt? No. 
Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, expand if you want to. (laughs) So pain on your nipples, like pain is a warning sign um, anywhere on your body. And it's the same thing. So if your nipples are hurting, that's your body's way of saying, whoa, something's right. Baby probably isn't latching well. And if baby isn't latching well, baby probably isn't getting enough milk. So um, personally, I think the alarm system is a little jacked up and it could probably be toned down a little bit. But um, low pain threshold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Breastfeeding when it's going well, it shouldn't hurt. Okay. Well, next myth first fact, breastfeeding will cause your breasts to sag. Ah, pregnancy causes your breasts to sag. <laughs> yes. Life by the that way causes your breasts to sag. <laughs> yes. Breastfeeding does, uh, can change the, uh, your nipple a little bit, but, um, if you're really worried about that, don't, don't have a baby. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, there you go. (laughs) Myth versus fact. If you have small breasts, you won't produce enough milk to feed your baby. Uh, That's another myth. Yeah, they make just as much milk. So it's all about glandular tissue in your breasts. That's what determines the amount of of milk production that you're going to have. So very tiny breasts may have a little bit, shall we say, smaller storage capacity. Okay. And so those babies might maybe need to eat a little bit more frequently. But just because you have a, I don't know, a K-cup breast doesn't mean that you're going to make significantly more milk than someone who has an A-cup breast. It's um, a lot more complicated than that. Okay. Well, next myth versus fact, you can't breastfeed if you've had breast augmentation or breast reduction surgery. Um, Another myth, but a qualified myth there. um, There's certainly um, a potential to have decreased milk supply and decreased milk production if you've had your breasts um, augmented um, or reduced or mucked around with in any way. Okay. How about you need to nurse every two hours around the clock to make sure your baby gets enough to eat? Uh, You need to nurse in a way that your baby, a newborn baby, gains about an ounce a day. Um, And you should be nursing frequently enough that your baby approximately doubles their birth weight by around five to six months of age and triples it by a year. Um, How frequently that is varies on the mom, the volume of milk she makes, the amount of calories per ounce in her milk, lots of other factors. But um, generally one to three to four hours. Moms of multiple births won't have enough milk for all the babies. Um, myth again. Wow. Do we have any facts? I don't think so. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Mothers of multiples um, do just fine making milk for for lots of babies. I have twins myself um, and I fed them. So there you go. (laughs) They they made it through. (laughs) They made it through. (laughs) Moms who take antidepressants shouldn't breastfeed. Um, Another myth. Absolutely. Yeah. The vast majority of medications are safe to take while breastfeeding. Um, Giant caveat there. You should always ask, always Mm -hmm. ask your physician, Mm -hmm. always ask the pharmacist, what is the impact here? But the reality is that more medications pass to the baby during pregnancy than do during breastfeeding. It's a different system. Um, It's a glandular system. There's all sorts of gatekeepers Mm -hmm. um, in the breast. So, and as uh, we talked about in our postpartum depression segment, it is way riskier for a mom to not be treated for depression and anxiety than it is this small amount of medication that may pass through her breast milk. And we can usually work to find a different medication that um, could be safer. Great info. Oh, here's a good one. You have to pump and dump if you drink alcohol. 
um, another myth. Oh my God, we are not doing well here. Not doing well. (laughs) So the breast, uh, the alcohol is metabolized out of the breast at the same rate that it is metabolized out of the bloodstream. So if a mom's uh, blood alcohol level is, I don't know, 0.2, whatever, then her milk is technically 0.2 blood alcohol level. That's not actually a term, but you can think of Mm -hmm. it the same way. So if she were to have a, a glass of wine or a beer or something like that, if she is feeling any effects whatsoever, any sort of um, buzz or, mm-hmm. or tipsy, she should not breastfeed because at that time, uh, her milk is also feeling a little tipsy, if you will. Got it. Um, and that alcohol will be passed on to the baby. Likewise, once she is feeling 100% sober, then that milk is okay to feed to that baby. Okay. And if we're really questioning this, then maybe we shouldn't be going out and, and drinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good answer. Well, this is my um, favorite one. If you don't nurse, you're a bad mom. Ooh. That is a myth. Huge myth. Yes. Yes. You know, I've been doing this now for 26 years and I've met women and I work in other countries as well. And uh, to date, I've never met a bad mom. Mm. Um, Women are are strong. They're powerful. They're amazing. It's amazing what women can do with with their bodies. I mean, my goodness, just growing a baby. Wow. Wow. Like that's how mind blowing is that? And then this live human being comes out of you. Wow. And then you can like make milk to feed it. (laughs) That's crazy, right? So um, babies have throughout history needed to be supplemented by and or helped out by other moms um, and other people in the community or with formula or whatever. Um, That has nothing to do with you being a good mom or a bad mom. Um, Good moms, you know, you feed your kid. Right. And so at the end of the day, rule number one is is to feed the baby. So we need to get away from attaching guilt to motherhood. Especially other Entirely. moms. Moms judging moms is such a big thing right now. It's a thing. It is okay, a stop thing. Stop doing un- that. Unfortunately. Yeah. You know, it, it takes a community. It, it's hard work. I don't think as, as humans we were ever designed to have children um, alone. Um, and that's exactly what our society expects us to do. And so we really have to get together. And it, it's a hard enough gig as it is right. um, without attaching guilt and blame and judgment to it. So there's one thing I could do in my career, it would be to eliminate that. Oh, great advice. Great words. Great wisdom. We really appreciate having you on the show. So thank you for joining us, Jennifer, on Talk with the Doc (laughs) and everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.